Grace and peace, brothers and sisters. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is Exile Cast, April 22nd, in the year of our Lord, 2020. I hope and I pray that you are doing well in your homes, and that those of you who are working from home or uh, teaching from home are finding balance and peace, and that those who are working those essential jobs out there that we all need are staying safe and finding rest. Boy, I hope some of you will join me tomorrow night for our discussion about Babette's Feast on Zoom. I'm sorry it's been delayed. It's been a couple, tough couple weeks since Easter, uh, but I hope it'll be worth the wait. More information about that discussion is in our newsletter and on our Facebook page. Also, if you're interested in joining our Wednesday night Bible study that starts a week from today, please drop me a line, send me an email or a text, and let me know so that I can send you a uh, an invitation. We're not just putting the code out there for anyone and everyone, but um, uh, there have been some problems with folks kind of hacking into Zoom and stuff like that. So uh, I want to send those out individually to those who are interested. Even if you're not a member of the church, you're still welcome there in that digital space. Uh, we'll be conducting this by Zoom, so you'll want to read up on how to make Zoom work if you haven't used it before. And you'll want to bring your Bible along with a notebook. Um, you don't have to do any reading beforehand or anything like that. And we will gather there on Zoom and do what we do best, which is talk about Jesus. Also, this week, I'm wondering what little life-giving rituals you are keeping during this time that keep you close to God, that keep you close to your family, or even that just keep you close to yourself. Boy, you know, rituals get such a bad rap these days, and I think that word, ritualistic, is such a terrible epithet, especially in the religious world. I think most people think of rituals as being inherently empty and mindless, that they're some kind of bad thing. But, you know, one of the reasons I continue to believe in rituals is because I'm a dog owner. And living with dogs especially giant breed dogs that cannot be ignored so easily, you come to realize just how important and ubiquitous rituals are to life. And not just human life. Boy, my old dog Hannibal in old Newfoundland, he had so many rituals. Every time Maggie would come home from work, he would stand at the door and bark at her exactly three times, no matter what, every day. Or before he would lay down, he would always sniff the spot that he was about to plop onto, and then he would turn in a counterclockwise circle, never clockwise. And then finally he would lie down. With my dogs now, uh, they know 
that it's their time to get their bones right after their evening walk with dinner short to follow. And if you break that pattern, they let you know. Beowulf and Fenris even seem to know what day it is. Because on Thursday mornings, they always run to the Bible study room looking for all their church ladies. Even after more than a month in lockdown, they still check on Thursday mornings just to be sure. You know, rituals are how we know who we are. How we know that we're okay. I always tell my mom I love her when I hang up the phone. I always kiss and say goodnight to my wife before I go to bed. I always look out my bedroom window at the glowing cross behind the stained glass of the sanctuary of the church and make the sign of the cross and say the Lord's Prayer before bed. No matter what I do during the day, no matter how joyful or sad or excited or anxious I am, that little thing helps me know that I'm okay. What are the rituals that bring you back to yourself during the great pandemic of 2020? My wife and I started reading together when this all started. We take turns uh, reading these fantasy books to each other. First, we read The Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. And now we're reading the sequel, The Tombs of Atuan. At first, the idea of reading to one another seemed kind of weird and maybe even childish. I mean, they're just silly books about wizards and dragons. But that has become a ritual that has been so life-giving and soul-centering to us during an especially difficult time. So I'd love to hear from you. Drop a comment on our Facebook page or send me a text or an email with one of your rituals that is helping you. And I'll take some time on the next podcast to share it with the rest of the congregation. Maybe what you're doing will help somebody else. Maybe your silly little ritual will be the key to keeping someone else sane or giving someone hope or just helping someone get through a a rough day. The point is, brothers and sisters, our rituals can help remind us who we are and whose we are especially when the days are long and we live in exile. Today's sermon comes to us all the way back from January 12, 2020. It was the Baptism of Christ Sunday, and the reference scripture is Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17. I hope it speaks to you today. I wish to preach to you this morning from the title, A Rude Awakening. A Rude Awakening. Please pray with me. And now, most holy and merciful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. 
O God, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Arise, sleeper. Awake from the dead, and the light of Christ will shine upon you. Have you ever gone to bed and not been able to remember how you got there? (laughs) Once, when I was a teenager, my parents went out to dinner with some friends of theirs. So I think they gave me some money for pizza, and they let me stay home by myself for the night. And when I woke up, for the life of me, I couldn't remember going to bed. I remembered eating the pizza and watching at least part of a movie, but I had no idea how it ended. And I didn't remember actually walking upstairs and tucking myself in. When I came downstairs that morning, my mom had already been up and gone to the store. And I said, hey, mom, good morning. And then suddenly she pulled something out of a grocery bag, slammed it on the counter and said, here, here's your stupid popcorn. I said, Popcorn, what are you talking about? She said, if you ever talk to us like that again, you're going to be grounded. I said, what what is happening right now? She said, don't play dumb. You know what happened. We came home, and you were laying on the couch, and, and you just started yelling at us, cussing us up one side and down the other, that we didn't have any popcorn in the house. (laughs) No, how was dinner or thanks for the pizza? Just, where's my GD popcorn? Why don't you ever buy any popcorn? You know it's my favorite. I said, Mom, there's no way that happened. And at that point, my dad walked in and said, Hey, I think we need to have a talk about this popcorn. Just then, my mom let out this this guttural grunt and said, Oh! We turned to her and she said, The popcorn was right here in the pantry! See, that's the thing about sleepwalking. You might be up and about, you might be moving around, you might have your eyes open and talking clearly and distinctly, but you're not yourself. No matter what you might usually do or what you might usually say, when you're sleepwalking, your identity is not your own. And then one morning you wake up and realize that you've actually been hurting people and not even known it. Back in the ancient church, I think sleepwalking was this metaphor for what it was to live without Christ in your life. A lot of people don't get that because in in the original Greek, it's kind of up in the air. Uh, The words for sleep and death are almost interchangeable in Greek literature. 
the, the words hypnos and thanatos. Um, one is, is the god of sleep and, and one is the god of death, but they, they use them in place of one another all the time. So the church fathers and the church mothers would talk about those who, who walked in thanatos, who, who walked in death, but it could just as easily be those who walked in sleep. Even that line from the 23rd Psalm, when it was translated into Greek, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, may in fact be, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of sleep. Either way, I think the picture is the same. Of someone who is simply going through life like a zombie, doing all the things that they might normally do, but there's just something missing. Even though they might be acting like a person or talking like a person or even yelling like a person, they aren't themselves. That, that For the one who walks in sleep, for the one who walks in death, there's something absent a kind of soullessness, a vacancy, and a, and a purposelessness, like, like someone who is content to only be half awake or half alive, with all the form of life, but with none of the power. Have you ever felt like that? As you went about your day, like you were walking in your sleep, or even like you were walking in death. The first time I ever saw someone else sleepwalk, I was living in Columbus for a summer. My roommate Andre came downstairs late one night while I was watching television, and he just started pacing back and forth in the living room. His eyes were open, but they were totally vacant, and he was just going from one side of the room to the other, like he was looking for something. All I cared about was the fact that he was blocking the television. So I said, hey, Andre, Andre, but nothing, no response. And then I figured he might be sleepwalking, and I had heard that it can be dangerous to wake a sleepwalker, so I gently took Andre by the arm and started leading him back to bed. Right when we got to the top of the stairs, my other buddy, Chris, was coming around the corner with a glass of water in his hand. And I, I told him to be quiet because Andre was sleepwalking. And Chris said, oh, I can fix that. And he dumped the water on his head. Which, of course, caused Andre to wake up and then to subsequently freak out. He started screaming and yelling, where am I? Where am I? He hit me in the nose, and he gouged Chris in the eye, and then he took a step backward and fell down the stairs. We ran after him. Chris was apologizing the whole way. Oh, man, I'm really sorry. Are you okay? Are you okay? And then lying at the bottom of the steps, 
Andre said the most perfect thing anyone could possibly say in that particular context. He blinked his eyes, looked up at us, and said, Well, I guess that's what they call a rude awakening. <laughs> and so now, 15 years later, whenever I think about baptism, Whenever I think of someone coming forward to get water dunked on their head, in those words, arise, sleeper, awake, and the light of Christ will shine upon you, I have this image of Andre's blinking eyes at the bottom of the stairs. And I think, yeah, baptism is a kind of rude awakening. I think there is this shock factor to what it is that we do here. Sure, it, it, I know, it may seem kind of boring. Uh, I'm up here kind of droning on the, with these prayers and these sermons, and we have our little sing-along, and we do our little rituals, but all those things have been constructed to wake us up to something to shake us back into cognizance and to, to peel back the eyelids of the heart so that we can see what the world is really like. Namely, that the world is charged with the power of God. To wake us up to the fact that the universe is enchanted with God's spirit that each and every one of us has a part to play in his meta-narrative, in his great drama of love. I wonder what it must have been like for Christ in the Jordan. You know, this baptism scene that we read this morning, it, it, it takes place right at the beginning of his ministry, before he started healing people or, or preaching to big crowds or performing miracles. And I'm sure that at that point he must have known at least something about who he was. That he had heard the stories about his miraculous birth or that he knew he had some kind of special connection with the Father. But I wonder if this was the moment when the water first hits the top of his head and he sees the sky torn open above him and the dove comes down. I wonder if this was the moment that he woke up to the revelation of who he was and what he was put on this earth to do. I wonder if this was the first moment that he truly understood in his soul of souls that he was, in fact, God's beloved child. I ask because I'm wondering if you've had that moment yet. I'm wondering if you have woken up to that identity. You see, this world is always trying to convince us that we are nobody. 
They call us things like consumers or taxpayers. They call us voters and workers and users, always trying to reduce us down to these statistical microns of identity, calling us every name they can think of except what we really are, children of God. That's the lesson of Jesus' baptism. It's not just that he is God's son, the beloved with whom God is well pleased. It's that all of us have been baptized into that identity. That we are all sons and daughters of the, the divine. No matter who we are or what we've done, God is already pleased with us. God is already delighted by us by virtue of the fact that we are his children. It doesn't matter what you may have done in the past. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. It doesn't matter how broken you think you are. For those of you with kids of your own, think about them. What could they do to make you disown them? What crime could they commit? What, what sin could they perform that would make you turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then how much more is God's unconditional love for each one of us? If that's how much we love our kids, then how much more are we already Beloved by God. But you know, like me, screaming for that popcorn, or Andre pacing back and forth, the, the world is always trying to keep us searching for something, searching for an identity elsewhere, chasing after some indefinable widget that they promise will, pro will finally make us whole. They say, are you... Are you restless and, and tired and climbing the walls? Then buy this thing. Vote for this person. Be this identity. And then finally you'll be at rest. Some race around their entire lives, pushing themselves to the point of exhaustion, punishing themselves, not to mention their families for years on end. Chasing after what? More square footage? Heated leather seats? Perhaps an inheritance to leave behind to their children? Tell me, what good is an inheritance for someone who's in a coma? They keep telling us to strive, to fight, to claw our way to the top, even if it means we have to alienate our friends in our family and our church, all to increase our standard of living. But to those of us who are awake to the life-changing power of God, those of us who are awake to our true purpose in life and our true identity, we know that it is really a standard of dying. St. Augustine 
said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O Lord. Do you have a restless heart this morning? Do you have a heart that sleepwalks and paces and yells and cusses in the middle of the night for some treasure, for some identity, for some title or relationship or product or accomplishment that you think will finally make you whole. Something that'll finally satisfy the hunger deep inside of you. Something that will finally lead you upstairs and put you to rest. Well, I'm the one whose job it is to alert you to the fact that the popcorn is already in the pantry. I'm the one who's here to tell you that the love you've been longing for is already there. The affirmation that you've been screaming about is already there. The identity you've been trying to construct for yourself piece by piece with your, your clothes and your politics and your house and your job, it's already sealed upon your heart because you are God's beloved child with whom he is well pleased. These words I offer to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.